In the early 20th century, a series of revival meetings in Los Angeles shocked the nation. They had unsegregated worship services, where both women and men spoke in tongues, performed faith healings, and wildly claimed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. These meetings, held in a small, rundown building on Azusa Street, were pivotal in the creation of the modern Pentecostal movement. In today's episode, we sit down with Carrie Day, who is Professor of Constructive Theology and African American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. We discuss her new book, Azusa Reimagined, A Radical Vision of Religious and Democratic Belonging. In this interview, we'll consider what lessons the Azusa Street Revival can provide for those seeking new ways to create belonging in churches and in our society. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and be in discussion with you. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to be talking about Azusa Reimagined. Um, And what you share in the book is is a little bit of your own story, which I think sets the stage for the why this book needed to be written. So can you, you tell us, you call yourself a child of Pentecostalism. So can you tell us a bit of your story? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I am a fourth generation in the Church of God in Christ. The acronym is Kojic, but I'm a fourth generation. Mm-hmm. And there have been all kinds of stereotypes and labels associated with Pentecostals as noisy and backwards and uneducated and uncultured and all these different things, right? Um, and so the reason why I was wanting to name that is because, you know, I am an African-American woman that, you know, is a professor at one of the most prestigious institutions of theological education. A fully uh, tenured professor, I might add. <laughs> Thank you. I so appreciate that. Yes, fully full, tenured and, and a full professor now. Yes. Um, um, and, and so, you know, there's a way in which I absolutely am a part of what people refer to as the ivory tower. Um, mm-hmm. And yet I am claiming, right, this identity. But yet I am a child of Pentecostalism, which says it's not just um, uh, uh, the academic environment sort of that has formed me with respect to my own intellectual and vocational commitments. But saying I'm a child of Pentecostalism is a sort of signal. Pentecostalism has formed me as a human being, as a black woman, as a Christian. It is it has utterly shaped my intellectual and vocational uh, uh, interests. And so with that being said, you can automatically anticipate why this would be important for me, right? These two mm-hmm. disparate worlds, they're seen as separate. They're seen oftentimes as even antithetical, Pentecostalism as anti-intellectual, and of course, academic life as, you know, the epitome of intellectualism. And for me, then, then personally, wanting to begin to write to make sense right, of these two worlds, but to bridge these two worlds in some way through this history of Azusa. Yeah, it's so great because I think you set us up to experience some of the ways that you push against those exclusive categories um, across the board, but one of them being kind of the life of the intellect and the life of the spirit. I I do, right? Um, Because, uh, you know, and I'll start here within the history sort of of both Christian theology, but then in mainstream um, white churches in the U.S., there is been this assumption through belief and practice that at the center of Christian faith is this um, sort of faith-sinking understanding, right? Uh, understanding is, is about the life of the mind. 
But for me, it was sort of this understanding going back to the child of Pentecostalism that how we Mm -hmm. come as Pentecostals, how we come to know something about God is in and through the body. But that's not in some ways to think of the body as sort of sitting over and against the mind, right? There's a way in which the mind, how we come to understand something intellectually involves the very participation of the body, of corporality, of the material life, right? Just not our bodies, but creation Mm -hmm. itself, how we're moving in the world. So that as um, a Pentecostal then, knowledge about God uh, is mediated in and through our bodies, right? Whether it's in worship service, whether it's in fellowship. And that's really important, right? Uh, uh, as we turn to the book that I've written, because part of what I'm attempting to, I guess you could say, uh, disturb or, or unsettle within Christian theology, within mainstream churches that Azusa was doing, is sort of unsettling this idea that over here we have reason which guides faith and intellectual life. And then on the other side, you have the passions, right? Which sort of get in the way of a true understanding of God and a true and, and true service to God. Um, and that Pentecostals then teach us something, and Azusa in particular, about uh, epistemology, right? Theological epistemology. How do we come to know what we know about God and about divine life? But not only that, how do we come to know what we know about the world? And Azusa wants, part of this uh, investigation that I do with Azusa is making the argument that these people, uh, in many ways, this community, they're deeply invested in turning to the ground level what's going on in communities uh, as, as it relates to, say, racism, patriarchy, and so forth, as a way to understand the world as it truly is and how God is moving in that world. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue. I mean, how do we know? How do we come to understand what God is up to? So set the stage for us. What is the apostolic faith mission? And for those who are not familiar, what's the Azusa Street Revival? Yeah. So the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, it be it began in Los Angeles, California. It is sort of understood as uh, the revival um, that, um, that we sort of attribute to the emergence of uh, Pentecostalism in the United States, um, and especially as it relates to some of your uh, mainline Pentecostal denominations. Now, I want to be clear that historians contest that, okay? So I want to be clear up front. Um, And I talk about this in my book very quickly because I'm very, you know, I'm also very clear that I'm not writing as a historian. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I am a theologian. I'm a critical theorist of religion. Um, That you have other sort of Pentecostal groups that sort of precede the Azusa revival. However, it is generally understood that your mainline Pentecostal denominations, they do come out for the most part of the Azusa revival and hence the attribution of of, uh, early Pentecostalism in this country to the Azusa movement. Um, The reason why, and I'm glad you brought up the apostolic faith mission, okay? This is really important because people that know about the beginnings of early Pentecostalism, they often know about the Azusa Street Revival. But I think what's important to note that I do talk about in my book at the beginning is that the Azusa Street Revival, this revival and movement, it emerges out of a church 
out of ecclesial life, that the apostolic mission Mm -hmm. church is actually this small church. So just to give a bit of history as we continue this conversation, you have William Seymour, who eventually becomes the pastor, who is actually living in Houston, Texas, okay? Um, And is actually being pastored, and I know we'll get to this, Mm -hmm. he's being pastored by a woman, Lucy Farrell, okay? And they are in conversation with Charles Parham, a white minister that is beginning already to talk about Pentecostalism, what is distinctive about uh, Pentecostalism. When um, there is a woman called Neely Terry who visits in Houston, she has family, she visits Lucy Farrell's church. She hears William Seymour. She invites William Seymour to Los Angeles to her church. Another woman is pastoring at this church, Julia Hutchins. Seymour, a few days later, he travels to Los Angeles where he, in this church, Julia Hutchins Church, he sort of presents this new emerging doctrine of initial evidence, which is this idea within early Pentecostalism that uh, a part of having the Holy Spirit is receiving the gifts of the Spirit and namely speaking in other tongues. Well, Hutchins doesn't like that because Mm-hmm. Hutchins is a holiness pastor. She is, but she's not Pentecostal. So she throws him out. Okay. It, it's Seymour and these, this small band of people that mm-hmm. follow him and they go to a, a couple's house by the name of Richard and Ruth Asbury on Bonnie Bray street in Los Angeles. And they begin a very small communion there of worshiping. I mean, it's often understood that what actually forces them to move from Bonnie Bray street while they're worshiping on the porch and crowds are gathering is that the porch falls in, it collapses, it caves in and they realize they need a new building. And so after worshiping there for, for, you know, Mm -hmm. a a month or two, they realize they need a new building. Seymour founds a, finds a building on Azusa street in Los Angeles. And it's at that point when they move over to that building that they officially identify themselves as the apostolic mission church, right? And this would be the church out of which this revival and this movement would be birthed. And all of that to say, the reason why that that ministry is really important is because we often, even within, you know, theological circles, it's the question of um, how efficacious can churches be today, right? In terms of the ecclesial life, how do we think about church practice and even liturgical practice with respect to questions of social change? which with respect to structural racism and heteropatriarchy and classism. And here Mm -hmm. you see that it's not just this movement, right? That just emerges out of nowhere. It's about the way in which a church community actually through fellowship, through liturgy and other sorts of things are coming together. And out of this profound experience, something radical is born that changes the landscape of American religiosity in the 20th century. What was so radical about this community? Gosh, I could probably name four or five things, but really I would say a couple uh, that are, I think, most important, especially to the, of course, the book I've written, Azusa, Reimagined. The first is um, in Los Angeles. I mean, this is the case at the beginning of the 20th century where you have industrialism emerging, right? You have 
uh, although we would we would we would see a new form of slavery, neo slavery through segregation, um, um, you have African Americans, right, um, uh, that are uh, 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 experiencing the first in politics, right? The first in banking, things like mm-hmm. that. But you also have this influx of immigrants, mm-hmm. right? And this is absolutely the case for Los Angeles. You have this huge flux, influx of immigrants from around the world. Um, so that part of the question at the beginning of the 20th century for the nation, it was how do we live together with the growing diversity, mm-hmm. not only in terms of racial diversity and ethnic diversity, diversity and national diversity, but also religious diversity, right? Because these folks were bringing over their own unique religious and spiritual context. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is against the backdrop of profound structural racism, yeah. right? Not just meted out against African-Americans, but Asians, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Latinx people and so forth. And so what is really radical about Azusa is first, the way in which you have a, a, a church community coming together and there are experiences of the spirit. There is fellowship in many ways that is crossing the segregative boundaries and logics of early America. You know, what is absolutely revolutionary and dangerous about this revival is the way in which it it, it really violates the very segregative and really legal at that time logic mm-hmm. of American whiteness and 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 really anti anti blackness and structural racism. So that's one image I think that really and here's maybe another image. You have black women that are serving as the gatekeepers at this revival, gatekeepers of the religious conversion, the religious experience. As I talk about in the book, the religious conversion experience is being mediated through enslaved religious practices. These are the practices that you would find uh, when uh, African-Americans were enslaved, you would find at the plantations. These these practices were seen as pagan retentions from Africa, okay? They were seen as unsophisticated, as demonic. And here you have at this revival, these uh, enslaved religious practices uh, forming the cornerstone of the, 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 the spirit experience, not only of African-Americans, but of white folks. Yeah, I mean, you use, you use the phrase queer as a word to help express kind of how outside of the, the normative structure Azusa was. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, you know, so I take my cue here from, uh, um, in particular, uh, Lynn Tonstad, a systematic and constructive uh, queer theologian, um, but I mean, there have been many. I mean, Patrick Chang, another one, right? Um, Asian American theologian that has written uh, extensively about that. The term queer is certainly about how we think about uh, uh, that which sits outside of the heteronormative gaze with respect to identity as such, right? Um, so you know, the LGBTQ a community is an example of identity as such, um, as well as practice. But that the term queer more broadly is um, about deviation from the norm, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, so that when we're speaking about queering something, it is about the way in which a particular phenomenon is uh, uh, countering and deviating, right, from the norm in, in, in this kind of way. And uh, I mean, clearly, at least the way in which I try to present, uh, and I also should say this, that, and in this sense, the way I talk about queer, and this is Tina Camp, Black feminist theorist, Tina Camp, is queer as uh 
also participating in uh, in sort of the idea of the fugitive, meaning mm. practice an identity that is on the run, that is just not deviating from the norm, right? But it's being punished for doing so. Yeah. And and part of the way in which then society that lives by the norm, the punishing often means that these communities in some way are quote unquote on the run, right? They're, they, they're pushed underground, um, they're penalized, they're punished as such. And so for me, this all that I've described about Azusa thus far, I argue makes at least Azusa's practice quite queer, right? Because mm-hmm. it's transgressing racial boundaries. It's transgressing um, uh, uh, gendered boundaries. You have the evangelist uh, Methodist minister, Alma White, that comes down to Azusa and she says, you know, all of this, uh, uh, she calls it uh, uh, these examples and expressions of free love. And she knew what she was doing when she invoked the idea of free love. Okay. Um, This, uh, this idea that it is uh, it is outside the bounds of sexual propriety and gender norms and roles. Okay. Yeah. And um, when you have women leading and preaching out of which most denominations did not allow women to pastor or preach um, as well as you, as she said, you have the scandalous mixing of the sexes. I mean, you know, what does it mean when you walk into the revival and you see, uh, uh, men uh, and women hugged together, bodies, you know, absolutely pressed together in the spirit through an experience. And so in, in this way, for me, it is a very queer, right? Uncanny, deviating from the norm, but punished in some ways and on the run, right? From the law, from mainline Christian communities that feel uh, that it's 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 a dangerous, uh, a dangerous uh, religious community. Yeah, I I like the way that you push a little bit into the use of the word erotic, mm-hmm. um, and in a helpful way. Can you say just a bit about that? Yeah. So you know, I um, oftentimes, and and m- much of my conversation about the erotic uh, has been informed by um, not only black feminists but also by theologians such as Paul Tillich would be one um, that sort of sees the erotic as actually participating in what he refers to as the ontology of love, both God's love and then our expression of God's, God's love moved out toward humanity and creation, right? So, I mean, you have this history, right, of the erotic in Western philosophy and Western theology as seen as debased, right, as getting in the way of of the contemplation of God, getting in the way of, um, uh, uh, you know, of a service to God. And so the erotic has a long history uh, as being seen as a sin, as a vice. And mm-hmm. so for me, part of reclaiming uh, the idea of the erotic first is to show the in this book the way in which uh, the erotic actually uh, functions to secure uh, um, relations of belonging, right? What we hold dear. And that can be human on human, but that could also be what it means in terms of erotic or desire, things that I desire. That can be in how I engage a book, right? In terms of my desire, that can be in how I read a poem with passion, engaging all of my being and all of myself. Um, but what I was wanting to do here in the book, however, so I wanted to say, uh, be 
brief background on how philosophy and theology has thought about it, is mm -hmm. to think about the contradictions and ambiguities of the erotic. And that is, if it is the case that the erotic offers us a way to uh, feel desire and to long and to yearn for the deepest parts of who we are and who others are and of the world. If it is in some ways that which funds how we think about intimacy and belonging, and here I'm drawing off of Black feminist Sharon Holland's work, that it can be argued that the erotic can bring us together in ways that are profoundly life-giving, right? Um, that, 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 undergirds communities of belonging that are justice and, and promote human flourishing, but that we can also experience certain forms of yearning and desire that are death dealing, certain forms of yearning and desire that actually harm. And so for me, then talking about the erotic life of racism is this understanding that it's not just structural material arrangements that keep ra racism going. But it's also feelings and events and sentiments and ties that bind. Like, for example, in white supremacy or white nationalism, there's a deep desire and yearning to be together among white nationalists. But the problem is the object of that yearning is distorted. Right. Yeah. And so for me, it was really important to talk about the, the contradictions and the ambiguities and the ways in which the erotic can go wrong. And and what I love is that you share how the Azusa revival was also very right. complicated. This was not a simple, straightforward, I mean, what community of faith is, right? <laughs> um, but even in its kind of erotic aspects, this desires of kind of deepest longing, belonging, and connection, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated, right? I mean, so in my estimation, the erotic... Uh, cannot be contained. It has its own inner life, right? It cannot be controlled. And so even in some of the, the best moments of the Azusa revival, for example, um, uh, in which, you know, what it means to yearn and long across racial and gender and class and nationality and ethnic difference is powerful. There's a way in which those very norms often, again, the erotic life of racism and patriarchy, nevertheless, creep back in. And here's one example. William Seymour mm -hmm. absolutely supported women in ministry as pastors and preachers. Many of them go on to start churches. But you have people from the outside that are critiquing, right? I mean, you have husbands of the women leaders at his church that are coming to Seymour and saying they're no longer being good wives. Can you- Right, you've disturbed the peace in my home now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and, and so you even have one situation- uh, a, a woman leader uh, that led right by Seymour and the husband threatened to to basically divorce her if she did not stop the, the activities, the leadership activities uh, of the church. And so here you see Seymour, he's becoming more aware of how others think about the community. And so Seymour as a way to offer a politics of respectability, as a way to be more in line with the gender norms of the day, you see Seymour actually making at critical moments a turn back toward the very gendered norms that the revival in many ways, at least performatively, were countering.
let's go back to Lucy Farrow. You mentioned her quite a while ago, but um, it'd be a missed opportunity not to share a bit of her story. So can you tell us about Lucy Farrow? Yeah, so Lucy Farrow was the first, well, at least it was recorded, the first recorded African-American to receive the Holy Spirit and tongues in a Parham's revival. It's actually Lucy that brings this mm view back to Seymour. So it's a black woman pastor that introduces in some ways Seymour to Parham and to this experience. And so, you know, I think what is really significant about Lucy Farrow is in the current context where you have, for example, the denomination I come out of, the Church of God in Christ, the acronym Kojic, we, they, this, this denomination still does not ordain women. And the conversation right now is not even on the table in the General Assembly. They have taken it off of the table Um, that Mm -hmm. here you have Seymour, who becomes the central leader and figure of early Pentecostalism. But it's important to remember that Seymour's experience and Pentecostal identity would be birthed through a community of women, namely Lucy Farrell. Which what who was his pastor? So to me, this is uh, I think a major moment that can counter the deep misogynistic and heteropatriarchal practices of contemporary Pentecostalism today. That does not see on biblical grounds and cultural grounds does not see women as uh, uh, um, being uh, uh, proper or justified leaders as pastors um, and preachers and so forth, um, that actually what you see is Seymour being led by a woman. (laughs) Yeah, what a great um, opportunity to reclaim a part of history that could be overlooked. Hmm. One of the things that, that you state later on, and this is a phrase that just jumped off the page at me, is you're encouraging Christians today, um, to pay attention to what you call the moods of the unredeemed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like one is to point at history, right. Of Lucy Farrow, but, but can you say more about what else you'd like people to pay attention to? <laughs> one, it sounds like is your own history, but what do you mean by the moods of the unredeemed? Yeah. When I speak about those who are unredeemed, it's those who refuse to buy into the narrative that simply participating in the capitalist project will redeem them, will enable them to experience success. Think about over half of American workers today have to often work two to three jobs just to stay at either right above poverty level line or, or, or some of them still are below with a family of two or three. And so, and so for me, at least, it's about thinking about those and, and listening to their cries, listening to their moods, their pessimism, their staunch and vehement critiques, right, of, um, of a, a democratic racial capitalist project that actually depends upon the exploitation and expropriation of people's bodies, lives, and work. And so that's what I mean, really listening to these people, not as problems that we need to solve, but as human beings that are telling us something about what is wrong, what is profoundly wrong about the, 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 about democracy and about racial capitalism as it's experienced today. Yeah, and I think Azusa points toward 
a possibility of that kind of resistance, that something new emerging in the context of something else that's broken. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the hopefulness in a different kind of understanding of what democracy could mm. be? Yeah. So, you know, I, if you recall in those last few pages, I resist um, the urge that I know many readers want. Well then, okay. What is just democracy, right? Help me vote better. Right, right. There you go. Help me vote better. <laughs> Help me do this. Help me do that. Right. And, and so what I try to do is I try to resist moving in that direction because part of my argument in that last chapter is that we don't even know right now what we should do until we've listened to those that are on the underside of the racial capitalist democratic project, right? That, I mean, and so in some ways it takes a profound intellectual and political humility for those in, you know, that, that, you know, may, may privilege from the structures, the, the economic and social and political structures that are in place to say, you know what, we don't even know what is needed until we have sat with the moods of those that are experiencing profound precarity from forms of neoliberal racial capitalism today. Um, and so for me, a part of then, then what, what, what is, and I, I use Derrida's understanding of the, of the democracy to come, this idea that number one, it is always an incomplete project, right? But the democracy to come is more about the kind of disposition as human beings, um, that we should have a kind of humility that we should have that we, you know, we have a tendency to get things wrong and we're going to get things wrong before we get things right. And so it's in that profound humility that keeps us then open to what we're getting wrong and how to, you know, and this idea of the democratic of how to engage the democratic in ways that really allow it to be the democratic as such. And again, this is, you know, uh, how how do we listen to those on the underside? And not just that, in listening to them, it may transform how we even understand democratic practice itself. Hmm. Like, here's one example. We live in a representative democracy. I think there's simply an assumption that, you know, this is an eternal form, <laughs> That's the way it's that's the that's the felt nature among many Americans. Um, but 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 maybe we are in terms of a democracy to come. Maybe we are at the beginning of an entire new rearticulation of what the democratic can be moving into the future that may not look like a representative democracy. Hmm. Right. So, I mean, really, my call is the call to imagine. It is a call of imagination, of political imagination, that that the political instruments that we have right now cannot save us in that sense. But that doesn't mean that in the process, we cannot think anew about what can be in terms of the political. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. Our editorial and production staff include Nathaniel Hood and Byron Walker. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to leave us a review. Even better, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary, 
Until next time, thanks for listening.